The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. Early on the morning of June 28, 1969, a popular gay and lesbian bar in New York City, the Stonewall Inn, was raided by police. What set it apart from the many raids that came before it was that this time, the patrons fought back. After years of homosexuality being criminalized, they had enough. The Stonewall Uprising came to be known as the watershed moment in the gay liberation movement, and the reason we celebrate Pride during the month of June. The first official celebration of gay pride was exactly one year after Stonewall. Today, depending on where you are, gay pride can include a smorgasbord of events to commemorate the historic struggles while celebrating gay joy and love. Parades, street parties, rainbow flags, performances, even corporate sponsors, and all outragers. In Kansas City, the person to thank for our very first gay pride parade in 1977 is Leah Hopkins, a self-described bold black lesbian. I started feeling a higher power is speaking to me and telling me this is where I'm supposed to be. Leah Hopkins served as a critical, outspoken advocate at a time when it was not easy to be out. I got the message loud and clear. You are a lesbian. You are with this group. You will speak out to the day you die. I'm Suzanne Hogan, and you're listening to A People's History of Kansas City, a podcast about the everyday heroes, visionaries, and renegades who have shaped our region. Usually our episodes are about heroes who didn't get enough credit during their lifetime, but this episode is in part about how Leah Hopkins is finally being celebrated for the visionary she always was. This is history. We were here, are here, and are going to always be here. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Leah Hopkins grew up in Kansas City, Kansas. She was an only child, but she quickly befriended the other kids on her block. One of my favorite things to do was play jacks. I was really good at that. She has a lot of fond memories of her childhood, but says her mom was super strict. She had a totally different image of myself than I had of myself. How much was religion or faith a part of your coming up? I was baptized twice, once in the Baptist church with my grandmother, who's Baptist, and then one in the Methodist church, because my other grandmother was a Methodist. Leah didn't get her first pair of pants until she was seven. There were pink pedal pushers. I was so excited. She says she was 13 years old when she realized she was gay. I knew I was different, as they say, and I knew that I preferred the company of women rather than men. 
But at 13, uh, you know, what are you going to do? School-wise, you never, it was never talked about. So it was my secret for a long, long time. In 1962, she graduated from Sumner High School, and then she studied for a year at Pittsburgh State. But then she landed a rather unique job. After attempting to apply for a simple secretarial position, she ended up getting hired as Kansas City's first black Playboy bunny. It was something I would have never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'm going to be a Playboy bunny. Bunny is an American creation. She's a cross between a hostess showgirl and a barmaid waitress. But I enjoyed it. Once I was there, got to know the older bunnies, you know, uh, made friends. What did the job entail? It sounded like there was a lot of rigorous training involved. There's a strict order as to how you set up your tray. And practice the dip, which is their ceremonial way of serving drinks. There's a strict order on everything. It never changes. And when you're in training, you have to remember that. Long hours and surprisingly hard work. And the job calls for grace and poise and a deft touch not always achieved at first attempt. Did you ever experience any harassment there? Oh, of course you do. I remember coming up to this table, and this man looks up. He's with his wife, and there's another couple sitting across the table. They're Caucasians. And he looks up, and he says, well, my God, we got us a chocolate bunny tonight. And I thought, oh, he shouldn't have done that. So I did my dip, and I served better than I've ever served. And is there anything else I can do for you, sir? How is the service, sir? And when the time came to bring the check, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that I was getting little or nothing from this man. And his wife was livid. You could tell just by looking at her and the other couple were very uncomfortable because he never let it die. So I gave him his check and I think he gave me a 10% tip. And the couple sitting across this man looked in his wallet and put a $100 bill on the table, cash. And I said, thank you very much. He said, no, thank you very much. I was at the Playboy Club for over three years, I believe. So then getting on the track to becoming a model and being signed with an agency, was that something that happened in Kansas City or while uh-huh, you were Kansas in Kansas City. Okay. You know, and it's another one of those, okay, now you don't have a job, what are you going to do? And there was Thelma Weir, I'll never forget her, her and her husband, dear, dear people. She had started a Barbizon agency in Kansas City. And we talked and went through a lot of questions and whatever, and she said, I think you'd be good for the agency. And I said, how much is the pay? And she said, $25 an hour. I said, no, I have to have 35 And she says, well, you know, Leah, I don't think there's something that we can do. And I said, okay, it was nice meeting you. And I got to the door and she said, okay, 35. The other models were really glad I came on board because they were making $25 an hour. If I'm getting 35, they were getting 35. So I had no problems with the other models at all. Do you remember some of the campaigns you did? I did liquor campaigns. I would go into the inner city and promote these two different brands of whiskey, which nobody should ever drink, <laughs> ever, ever. It was the cheapest you could ever buy at any store. But I garnered a following because she had the cards made up for me and I would give out my cards. 
So my clientele, as they call them, they would follow me from liquor store to liquor store to liquor store. So around this time, you started to feel a pull to leave Kansas City and go to a place where you might be able to flourish and more fully explore who you really are. Can you talk about your decision to move to New York? This is what I did first. I was living in an apartment. I had all my furniture delivered to my mother's house. My dad had passed away. And then I told her I was moving to New York the next day because I knew my mother and she would do everything humanly possible to keep me here, and I knew it was time for me to go. So I called my friend in New York and told her that I was coming, and she lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I lived with Jackie for almost two years, and of course told her why I left and that I was gay. She did not have a problem with that at all. Was she one of the first people you told? Yes. She was like my my savior in a way, safe space to be. We could talk. What was the scene like in the 70s in New York then, and did you kind of struggle to find your spot of where you fit in within that scene? No, I didn't. Once I made the decision that I was going to leave, go to New York alone and come out, this is my journey. Take it or leave it, not change it for anybody. And once that became obvious, then I had tons of friends, tons of places to go, I understood all the languages, who was called what and why, whatever. You know, there's no book out there that tells you that. You know, I'm a femme, I'm a butch, I'm a this, I'm a whatever, whatever. But once you master it, it's really, really easy. When you watch television, and it's like the streets of New York or some of the shows, and you see all these people, and it's like ants. Like, how, where, where are these people going and what are they doing? I don't know how they do it. But it is amazing to be with 200 people that have to go to lunch at the same time and get back to work. There is a sound because of that. There is a rhythm to that that eventually just permeates your entire body. And I didn't realize that until I came back to the Midwest. I didn't leave my job and come back to Kansas City until I was almost ready to have my son, Jason. Can you tell the story of how you came to have the decision to have a baby and what that was like? I started having dreams. It's really, really odd. And it was dreams of a little boy. And I don't know where it came from. Now I know. Now Now I understand it. And during that time... I had a very, very dear friend, Italian. Tony loved him to death. Nothing between us. I was his lesbian girlfriend. Let's make that clear. And I told him, I want to have a child. And he's like, excuse me? You're a lesbian and you want to have a child? I said, yes. And I want you to be the donor. (laughs) And he got this look on his face like, I think she's lost her mind. I don't understand this. He said, are you serious? And I said, I am very serious about this. And he said, okay. And then it was time to leave and come back. So you came back. I came back. You talked to your mother, and you told her that you were pregnant with your son, Jason. Mm -hmm. And I was a lesbian. In the same swoop. Same swoop. I basically told her, for as long as I can remember, 
myself being as an adult, you always wanted a grandchild. I said, well, you're going to have a grandchild. And your daughter is a lesbian. You're going to have to deal with that and decide. Because if you cannot deal with who I am, you will not have uh, be privy to your grandson. And what was her reaction? It took her a while to really get her head around it. And she really had to do some soul searching. Uh, her God, you know, her religion, whatever. But bottom line was, you have a grandson, and if you want him in your life, this is who I am. It know. sounds like at that point in your life, you were really just strong in your convictions, mm-hmm. being who you were, and you want your mom to be a part of that, but you weren't going to compromise yourself anymore. Exactly. Leah Hopkins' son, Jason, was born in 1974. And he was one of the first kids, if not the first, to be baptized by the Kansas City Congregation of the Metropolitan Community Church, a national LGBT affirmative church. MCC arrived in Kansas City in 1971 after being founded in California in 1966. That point in time, being Afro-American, I knew I was never going to go into a Baptist or a Methodist church because the pastors were preaching against homosexuality and so on and so forth. And that was something I would never put up with, ever, ever, ever. But I am religion in my own way. So I talked to my partner. I said, that's the church that we need to go to. And we went, and I loved the whole experience. And Jason was the one and only baby ever in that church. The Metropolitan Community Church is still going strong in Kansas City at 38th and Wyandotte, making it one of the longest operating LGBTQ organizations in the city. In 1976, Leah heard the founder of the Worldwide Metropolitan Community Church, Reverend Troy Perry, speak in Kansas City. We will stand because we are gay and we're proud and we're not afraid anymore. Thank you. And so seeing Troy Perry speak actually kind of ignited a fire inside of you, kind of yes. kick-started some activism yes. for you? I met Judy at Metropolitan Community Church. She was a member. And it was Judy, Michael, and Ken. And she decided that there was going to be a gay organization. And they called it Christopher Street, of course. Christopher Street in New York City was famously the location of the Stonewall Inn, where the Stonewall Uprising went down in June 1969, the event that became a huge catalyst for the LGBTQ rights movement across the nation. Judy said, would you be the spokesperson for Christopher Street? And I said, yes, I'll do it. So whenever there was anything going on, like we organized the first gay pride parade, well, you have to talk to reporters, you have to talk to whoever. And that was my job. Okay, before we get into how Leah organized the first gay pride parade in Kansas City, let's get into the history of gay pride in general a little bit. The formal celebration of gay pride started in June 1970, but it was also the culmination of decades of LGBTQ activism, in particular, the Reminder Day pickets, which were public gatherings promoting gay acceptance in the 1960s, organized by gay rights activists. We are seeking... For recognition, but exactly a year after Stonewall, the Reminder Day organizers decided to start commemorating that week on Christopher Street. June 28, 1970. One of the most important days in the history of the American homosexuals' fight for freedom. 
That first year, thousands of people gathered to march in New York, L.A., Chicago. The feeling was pervasive. It seemed as if everyone there knew that something of major importance had just happened to them, that there could be no turning back. There's been nothing like this before, and I hope it sets a tone and a trend for the whole future. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Pride officially came to Kansas City in June 1975, with the debut of the first Gay Pride Festival. The three-day event was initiated by the Gay People's Union, Kansas City's Women's Liberation Union, the Joint Committee for Gay Rights, and of course, the Metropolitan Community Church. It wasn't what you'd think of as a modern gay pride event, though. A flyer from the event at the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America advertised a picnic, conferences, workshops. I don't remember being here. I didn't do workshops. (laughs) Well, my next question, I think this kind of leads into it. It's like, what was the scene like in Kansas City in the 70s then? I mean, you just come from New York. You're back in Mm -hmm. Kansas City. What was the vibe? I mean, how did it compare? When I left New York and came back to Kansas City, I thought I had died. It was such a shock to me. I was like, what have you done? This is going to be the biggest mistake of your life. I described to you Manhattan. There is a sound there. It has a tempo, and it gets into every pore of your body. And when I came back here, the music stopped. There is a rhythm in being busy and people and and all that that was. And then you come back to silence. (laughs) But once I got over that part and then got involved in the church, met Judy and them, started doing interviews, I started feeling a higher power is speaking to me and telling me this is where I'm supposed to be. And I got the message loud and clear. You are a lesbian. You are with this group. You will speak out to the day you die. This was the kind of passion that Leah brought to Christopher Street when the organization was formed in 1977. Our goal was for Kansas City to have its first gay pride parade, number one. Number two, get the money for it. I said, well, we'll have to go to the gay businesses. I read that you stood outside of gay bars while they were busy on nights just asking for people to throw mm-hmm. money in a hat, and that's that was part of it, too? That was it. So I want you to paint the scene for me. It's like you did all this fundraising, mm-hmm. you've been organizing, and then the day happens. What was it like? What was the first Kansas City Pride Parade like? It was awesome. It really was. How many people? Oh, maybe 25, 30 We were small but mighty. Where'd you march to? Liberty Memorial. And I just told everybody, get ready, because people are going to be screaming out of cars, and they're going to be saying things, whatever, but we are going to do this. We marched up there and uh, had our gay pride parade. We had our small dinner. you know. And by that time, I had been on television forever, talking about gay pride, talking about uh, Christopher Street, the organization. So we garnered other members that that were ready to come out and be involved. Uh, How did you see it grow throughout um, those early years? It grew a lot, but for the people that came on board, they had to realize they may give up a lot. What do you mean? 
because you're out now and there's going to be a camera in your face. You know, do your parents know you're gay? Your brothers and sisters? Uh, where you live? Do they know in your apartment building? It was rather dangerous during those times. You know, uh, gay men were getting beat up at that time. Obviously, you were very, and still are very media savvy. You understood the importance mm -hmm. of being a spokesperson, so mm -hmm. to speak, for the movement. I was hoping maybe we could talk about the work you did to organize the protest against musician Anita Bryant. Oh, my Lord. And with God's continued help, we will prevail in our fight to repeal similar laws throughout the nation, which attempt to legitimize a lifestyle that is both perverse and dangerous. We're on our way to say I do. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. To start off, for someone who knows nothing about her, like, mm -hmm. can you tell me who was Anita Bryant? Anita Bryant was a married woman who was known as a singer, and she had been around for many, many years. Anita Bryant was a beauty queen from Oklahoma and the voice behind several hit songs in the 1960s. Yet a lot of people probably knew her as the brand ambassador for the Florida Citrus Commission. And remember, breakfast without orange juice is like a day without sunshine. She was huge. And then for some unforeseen reason, she decided that her mission was going to be making sure that there were no gay people on the planet. That's her bottom line. We all believe in human rights, but we don't believe human rights that would corrupt our children. In 1977, Anita Bryant started spreading harmful anti-gay rhetoric as part of a campaign to repeal a gay rights ordinance that had passed in Florida. The overwhelming defeat seems to have made the issue and the fight even more national in scope than before. After a successful campaign in Florida, she then went on to spread her message across the country. The gay community retaliated with huge protests and orange juice boycotts. So let's all squeeze a fruit for Anita. Pass a little juice around. Back then, screwdrivers at gay bars were served almost exclusively with apple juice. And then I found out she was coming to Kansas City. And I was like, okay, we've got to be ready. We've got to get this done. We're going to have a major march. And I was on TV. I was on the radio. And by then, Christopher Street had grown quite a bit. I was still involved with the church. And Miss Phyllis, God bless her, her son was gay. And anything I needed from this woman, she was phenomenal. She's talking about Phyllis Schaefer, a great LGBTQ ally and founding member of the Metropolitan Community Church. Phyllis was the mother of Drew Schaefer, the Kansas City gay rights activist who started the Phoenix Society, Kansas City's first LGBTQ organization, 
three years before Stonewall. We actually did an entire episode on this called How Kansas City Blazed a Path for Gay Liberation. And you should totally check it out. And she's anything you need, Leah, just let me know. Just anything you need. And I talked to her and I said, this woman is going around the country doing this and we need to do something about that. And bless her heart, she helped and organized and whatever. This was massive. Can you describe what it was like for you? Well, for me, being the spokesperson, I called the chief of police. I told him what we were going to do. I told him that I would have bodyguards with me, uh, gave him the names. They had gun permits because I I just knew there'd be anti-gay people there. You were afraid of violent backlash. absolutely. And we just organized it and advertised it and talked about it, and it's going to be downtown, and just show up. How many people showed up? God. I mean, for blocks, there were people marching. I was totally in shock. I think I read somewhere that it wasn't just the gay and lesbian community, but it was allies mm-hmm. of the movement, too. Yeah. And that was one of the other things I made sure that I always talked about, to our allies. The parents who loved their kids, the aunts, the uncles, uh, the people who had jobs and the boss knew and nobody cared. That summer, you told the Kansas City Star, and I'm, I'm going to quote it, I would like to thank Anita Bryant for the media coverage she has offered us across the country. We could not have done it without her. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like her coming kind of helped unify the movement? Absolutely. Anita thinks that uh, the gay community is going back into its closet from this. She's sorely mistaken. There is understanding in this room that just won't quit. And it was time. If you weren't going to do it against Anita Bryant, then you're never going to come out. You're never going to march. It's never going to happen. Do you see similarities today to some of the messages and tactics that members of the far right are still using to demonize and criminalize homosexuality? I am beyond pissed off. I'll just say it that way. The trans kids, it's just unbelievable to me that we are back at the beginning after all these years. You know, they, they'll do a story in the newspaper and it's about a bathroom, it's about this, it's about whatever. What message are you sending them is that they are not wanted and they are not loved. And that just makes me so angry after all these years. Jason went to Pembroke Hill from 7th through 12th. And if that would have happened at that school, I would have chained myself to the building. You'd have to get the police and whoever and a hacksaw to get me off the building because this is my child. If I don't do it, who will? I mean, to this day, there's not another Lee Hopkins out there. How did your life change in Kansas City after you became kind of this spokesperson? Like, how did your day-to-day life change here? It didn't change at all. Everyone who's ever known me knows one thing. I will speak my mind. If it works for you, fine. If it doesn't, that's okay, too. Leah's activism extended beyond just gay rights. She also tackled equity in class and gender. She was active with the feminist group Now and helped start the Gay Injustices Fund, which supported young gay people who needed legal counsel and gave them a place to go. She says the idea came to her when she heard the police department was locking up gay youth after the bars closed. Because... 
what are you going to do when the bar closes? Can you go home? Do your parents know you're gay? Okay, if they've already kicked you out, where are you living? Leah says one of the key people around for a lot of this was her son, Jason. I don't know if you've seen the picture or not. It was during the Women's March in Washington, and they had a rally here, and it's me and Jason. And he's this, this old, and he's got his hands on his hips, and somebody put a pith helmet on his head, and the banner says, we want our rights or something like that. I took him everywhere with me. So he grew up in activism. On top of all the activism, Leah was also a vibrant part of Kansas City's social community in the 70s and 80s. Is there like a prominent disco scene? Were you a part of that at all? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. What's her name? I Will Survive. I mean, you learn the lyrics because every bar played the music. Yeah. The minute you walked in the door, you started dancing. Those were good times. You were also a part of a cable variety show called Out There? Yes. Can you tell me, what? so what's the deal with the show? What was it like, and what was the goal of the program? The goal of the program was to have a gay-produced TV show, news and entertainment, and um, they reached out to me and asked me, <laughs> so like, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to be on cable. It's called Out the Kansas City, and we need someone to do the news, and we want you to do the news. I said, I would love to. So that's how I got involved with them. I loved working uh, on the show. We had a lot of guests. Yeah, different restaurant owners, other entertainers, uh, other people involved in the gay rights movement at that time. Out There went off the air in the mid-90s. And in the 2000s, most young people in Kansas City probably didn't know who Leah Hopkins was and how pivotal she was to Kansas City's history. But that seems to be changing now, thanks to the efforts of people like Stuart Hines, who is basically Kansas City's LGBTQ history champion. He co-created and preserves Glamma, the gay and lesbian archive of mid-America. And he's been a huge catalyst in helping people like Leah get celebrated during their lifetime. Like in June of 2022, when Leah was given the role of Grand Marshal at the 2022 Kansas City Pride Parade, exactly 45 years after starting Kansas City's very first gay pride parade. It was amazing. I mean, I never in my wildest dreams would have seen that coming. Ever, ever, ever. I enjoyed it being in the car and everything. And Well, and this is like a classic Corvette. Mm-hmm. How did that parade, the scene of that parade, maybe uh, contrast with your memories from what that first parade was like so many years ago? I was dumbstruck. Seeing parents with their kids, the baby strollers, there was a little girl, maybe three or four, and she had on a rainbow tutu. I almost lost my mind. And there were people in the crowd saying my name. That just made my heart just sing. I'm so happy that that you had that experience. Yeah. 45 years. You know, and I'm still doing what I'm supposed to do. It will never change ever. It's been my mission. It's been my joy. That's why I'm here. Also, you've used the practice of writing letters to the editor? Yes. Writing helps me a lot because I can go deeper inside my own head and my own heart when, I, when I'm not doing what I'm doing now. 
and I just felt that that needed to be out there when I'm no longer here. Part of my activism is also the fact that I am a mother, was a mother, because my son's no longer alive. Jason Hopkins, Leah's only biological child, died from cancer in 1997 at the age of 22. Though Leah says today she's surrounded by people she thinks of as sons and daughters. Other parents' children grew up in our home. And these parents knew that Pat and I were lesbians. They knew that their kids were very well taken care of. And I was a semi-mother to all of his classmates. I'm so proud of that. And they're grown now. And when they're in Kansas City, they call me and come by. One of his classmates came by to see me two weeks ago, and he brought his two-year-old son. Another one of his classmates brought her husband and her daughter. And her comment to her husband was, I am the woman I am today because of this woman. I'm very proud of that. It's incredible. And I clip the paper every day with every story that has to do with my community. Because if we don't do our history, who who will? Leah says she sends these clippings to Stuart Hines, who continues to add them to the monumental time capsule of information and stories at the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America. Recently, Leah and Stuart attended a local exhibit dedicated to Kansas City's Black queer history. But Leah says it wasn't until she arrived that she realized the exhibit was in part about her. I walked in and there were these two young ladies sitting at a table and they were handing out programs. So I picked up the program and I opened the program and I saw my picture. And Stuart said, surprise. The exhibit was mostly a collection of photos of Kansas City's black LGBTQ pioneers. Framed photographs of Kansas City's first documented black drag queens were on display, next to mementos from the group Men of All Colors together. And one wall was completely dedicated to Leah and all of her different roles. Kansas City's first black playboy bunny hanging out on the set of Out There. It was like a, it was this, like this is your life. That board there? Yeah. From top to bottom, all me. Whole wall of Leah that I didn't know was happening. The curator of Black Queer Kansas City, Nasir Anthony Moltavo, identifies as queer and Afro-Latine. Leah says she's unofficially adopted them as part of her family. I was just overwhelmed. I really, really was. Because that has been the neglected community and the most hidden community and the most forbidden community. So you're obviously a person who's very confident with who you are and you've given so much to the world through your activism and by just being yourself and I'm wondering what message or a bit of advice would you tell your 13 year old self who is navigating that unknown or to other queer young individuals who are maybe just feeling isolated or uncertain mm-hmm. about exploring who they really are first thing I'd say was it's all going to be alright know who you are won't be easy, but it's all going to be all right. You'll find your footing, you'll find your space, and you will definitely find your voice. Use it. 
A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan. Our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin, who also produced and mixed this episode, with editing by CJ Janovey and production help from Paris Norvell. Nasir Montalvo's exhibit, Black Queer Kansas City, featuring photos from Leah Hopkins' life and other LGBTQ activists in Kansas City, is at PH Coffee throughout the month of June. And if you want to celebrate the 46 years of gay pride parades in Kansas City, that's coming up this Saturday. More information at kcpridealliance.org. You heard archival audio this episode from Gay and Proud, Playboy Bunny Girls and the Playboy Club, Barbizon School of Modeling, CBS Morning News, the second largest minority, the Florida Citrus Commission, and the Kansas City Pride Community Alliance. Music this episode from the Marvelettes, Lou Reed, Anita Bryant, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this episode to Stuart Hines and the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America. Stuart, we truly don't know what we'd do without you. And I should say, if you liked this episode, we have two other great episodes about Kansas City's early LGBTQ history. The one I mentioned earlier, how Kansas City blazed a path for gay liberation, tells the story of Kansas City gay rights activist Drew Schaefer and how he published the first LGBTQ magazine in the Midwest, years before the Stonewall Uprising. There's also an episode called A Radical Enclave Called Woman Town about a group of badass Kansas City lesbians who created a self-sufficient community in the middle of town, attracting women from all over the U.S. All right, that's it. We have so much more coming down the feed this summer, so please stay tuned. You can get in touch with us anytime at kcur.org slash peopleshistory or by emailing us at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. We also have a Facebook group you can join for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Happy Pride. Take care and thanks for listening. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute.